Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to episode three of For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. In this episode, we discuss development projects in the city of Brantford. I'll be talking about development and redevelopment of the armories, the Stratford properties, and the Mohawk Greenwich District. Then I'll be chatting about the Mohawk Lake District and cleaning up the lake. And finally, I speak with Dr. Brenda Murphy about sustainable development. I think overall this episode actually ties in very nicely with our second episode because, you know, when we were talking about Market Square and One Market, we talked about how it has changed and been developed so many different ways. And now we're just exploring out from that of what's happened in the rest of the city. Yeah, when people look at things, right, sometimes they've only known a property as one building, right, their entire lives. And sometimes that's not the way it's always been. There's been multiple different uses and purposes of sites, and that's kind of changed and evolved over time. Uh, also depending on the needs of the community. I think one of the reasons we picked kind of this development and redevelopment topic is because Mandy was sharing so many interesting things about Eagle Place neighborhood and what she's seen changing over the years. Yeah, I'm actually pretty excited to see the changes that are going to be happening with the, with the Mohawk Lake District area and how the brownfields, how that's all been cleaned up and all of the the good things that are going to be coming for Eagle Place in that area. I think it's really interesting, the emotions that sometimes get attached with the change, right? Some changes that are good changes and some changes that are bad changes, right? And and what are the things that that make them good or bad, right? It's kind of it's kind of interesting because I'm sure there's there's buildings that I know about that I've loved and some of them have gone. And it reminds you that things always always do change. So True. And I think it's really important to keep the special things, keep some of the history, such as how they kept the timekeepers building over on Mohawk or Iron Horse and how that redevelopment will be happening. But they're keeping the uh, existing building that used to be the old Iron Horse and the old railway previous to that. So it's important to keep some history, too, even while we're redeveloping. And actually, I think another thing that I'm noticing when there's new development projects, there seems to be a greater importance placed on providing some sort of green space or or natural space. Like it's a it's all a balance, right? And I mean, the these tall, super 
tall structures do provide dense housing, uh, which means that we don't have to pave over as much green space. So it, in some ways, it, it does help make things easier in terms of actually having that green space right around you or next to you. And I'm excited to see what Dr. Brenda Murphy has to say, just because I think we are talking a lot about climate change and the environment these days and what that means in terms of the way we build future buildings and how, you know, our buildings will be impacted from a perspective of like temperature and, and weather. It's funny. I was talking with my friend Brandon the other day and I, we talked about urban heat islands and they're like this phenomenon that exists in every city. There's definitely one that exists in, within Brantford, right? So when talking about environmental sustainability, that's also one of the things that they look at are, are things like uh, temperatures and urban heat islands. Or do, do we have too much concrete? And another thing is like trees. Old trees are very important because they provide such a dense shade cover for communities you look at some of the new suburbs right and it's like blazing sun when you're walking down the street and when you're in an older established community it's like you're entirely shady and it's never as hot when you're walking down the street that makes me think about how excited i was to hear about the new city initiative that they're doing to increase the tree canopy for for brantford i think like that's going to be really good we had a tree in my neighborhood here in Paris. And when they, they took the tree down, it cost them a lot of money to take down the tree. I noticed it in the energy bills after the tree came down, our energy costs started going way up because we, in the summer, we had more air conditioning. This tree was over 600 years old. So it shaded like, not just like one city block, like a you know tiny city block, but like more than one. That's crazy, the difference that made. Yeah. And then sustainability, like environmental sustainability is one thing, but like financially sustainable housing as well. That's interesting what she's going to bring to the conversation. I've definitely heard of, um, you know, combining financial and environmental sustainability when it comes to housing development, because, you know, if you don't, for example, have space to grow vegetables in a garden, that's money you're spending at a grocery store versus growing your own food. That's just a small example. There's definitely other things to consider, but it's something that I don't think we think about enough when we're looking or building houses. It's very easy for me because I I don't drive. However, we often now are starting to talk about walkable communities. So you shouldn't have to drive to get everything, right? You shouldn't have to hop in your car and go to the mall. You should be able to walk five minutes down the street and be able to get your food and your groceries. And that's something that comes up a lot. I find when I'm talking to different community members, because they often say, well, they have to hop on one bus to get to this place and then transfer buses. And it takes them, you know, 45 minutes to do a basic thing in their life with a car. It takes five minutes, but really it should be that they're just able to do it within their community. So true, because I remember before I drove, it would take three hours to go work out at the gym for an hour because it took an hour on bus each way. So I think it'll be interesting to hear what Nathan has to say about kind of what has brought us to where we are now and what's happening now in our community in terms of development. And then, you know, 
maybe see what are some potentials of what we'll see in the future when it comes to development. We often think of redevelopment as a new phenomenon, but certainly there are some historical examples. That's right. Let's use another historical example uh, in the area around the armories and the Brant War Memorial. On the north side of the Lorne Bridge was the first wooden house at the Ford, and it was owned by a man named John Stoltz. Later, there was a brick building on the site owned by JPXL, two L's who I describe as Brantford's innovative prototype engineer. Essentially, he was a jack of all trades. He was listed in the 1875 city directory as, quote, manufacturer of umbrellas, parasols, surgical and mathematical instruments, cutlery, and jewelry polished and repaired, end quote. If you look at our historical primer for this week's episode, you can see a picture of Excel's building near where the Boer Monument is today. Around 1893, the existing structures were removed to construct the Brantford Armories, so we can see at least three different uses for this site in the 19th century. Redevelopment isn't just constrained to the downtown, uh, it also affected other areas of the city, right? Yeah, that's true. Glenhurst wasn't the first building on the site. The original plan from 1854 denotes it was owned by P.C. Van Brocklin. It was later bought by John Strafford and then was lived in by Joshua S. Hamilton and Joseph Strafford. We actually have a plan which shows the building on the west side of the driveway where it descends down to the river. When Cockshot brought the property, he redeveloped it for his gardens and built his house on the east side or the other side of the driveway. Construction was delayed due to materials not being available due to the war. And that's why the residence wasn't constructed until 1922. That's not the only Hamilton property that gets redeveloped. The original John H. Stratford Hospital was built in 1885 on land purchased from the Hart Homestead and built completely out of his own pocket. A first expansion was made in 1900. And four years later, a small power plant was built to provide heating and laundry. Additional expansions occurred in 1913 for the nurses' residence and 1940 for the Queen Elizabeth Pavilion, where D-Wing now stands. In the early uh, 1950s, the original Stratford Hospital was demolished with the grand opening of the John H. Stratford Pavilion, or B-Wing, today. As the city grew and expanded, how did it expand south of the downtown and what effects did it have? Originally, there were very few roads in this area. And the main road connecting Brantford with the original Mohawk village was a dirt road connecting to the village. The Brantford cut of the canal was bought through the area in 1847. And along the canal, the towpath provided assistance to the barges plying the river. This towpath later became established as Greenwich Street. During this time, most of the industries were located in the downtown core. And most manufacturers built custom pieces for each job undertaking only a handful of jobs at the time, which meant that few products were standardized. The movement to mass production meant that these industries needed a lot more space to create their production lines. Can you give us an example of a company that moved out of the downtown? It was easier to relocate to another area of the city and redevelop the downtown core for more businesses. 
So Watcher's Engine Works was originally located where the federal building or new city hall is today. They threatened the city to purchase the existing factory and demolish it, or they would pull the company out of town. This allowed the president, Charles H. Watcher's, to build their factory on Market Street South between Icom Drive and the Toronto, Hamilton, and Buffalo, or THMB station. Julius Watrous, often referred to as the rebel of the family, also built his wire nail works between the Watrous plant and the THMB station, and this was later redeveloped into the Freshco Plaza today. As an Eagle Place resident, I'm curious, how did redevelopment occur in and around Eagle Place? Well, the Verity Power Works were one of the companies who needed a similar expansion, and they moved from Wellington and Clarence Street to a new plant on the south side of the towpath, which was now Greenwich Street. As described in the 1901 Industrial Recorder, they built a plant in 1897 on 17 acres of land and put buildings end-to-end that would stretch over 500 meters. This 1901 Industrial Recorder also notes that a new arrival to the city is Adams Wagon Works, which was located at the intersection of Mohawk and Greenwich Streets. They had a patented steel truss axle that meant they were reliable wagons that would not break down in the field. The original Cockshut plant was located on Market Street South near the intersection with Icon Drive and was built in 1877. They tried expanding on the existing site, and in two years, they had outgrown that building. So that necessitated them moving next to the Adams Wagon Works on a 33-acre site employing about 900 people. Kind of sounds like Eagle Place is really the place to be at the turn of the century. So what happens moving forward? Well, these industries really started the development of Eagle Place into a working-class neighborhood. During World War I and World War II, the plant switched production to munitions, and women were often working in the plants. After the war, economic booms continued to ensure that Brantford's biggest industry of manufacturing farm equipment succeeded. This meant that employees were relatively well-treated and paid to aid in the growth of the city. Into the 1950s and 60s, the labor movement continued to grow, and unions at these companies were highly involved in not only improving pay, but also the working conditions of these employers. So how did these companies progress into the 1980s? In the heydays of Brantford's unquestioned dominance of the manufacturing superpower of the country, it was beginning to erode by the late 60s and early 70s. By the mid-80s, these companies were overstretched financially, and NAFTA negotiations definitely didn't help Brantford. By the late 80s, things were in dire straits, and four of Brantford's largest manufacturers and employers went bankrupt leaving massive unemployment over 25%. This hit the working class neighborhoods like Eagle Place the hardest, and most of the buildings uh, were demolished. The remaining building was identified by the community as having significant cultural heritage value in 2002 against the owner's wishes. On March 30th, 2012, there was a massive fire at one of the remaining buildings, meaning that it was required to be demolished with the exception of the timekeeper's office, which remains today. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with both Heidi and Joy about the great work being done for the Mohawk Lake District and the Mohawk Lake. Hi, Heidi, welcome. Would you be able to introduce yourself for the folks listening at home? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me, Mandy. My name is Heidi DeVries. I'm the general manager 
of a newly formed commission in the city of Brantford called People, Legislative Services and Planning. Um, and before this role, I was the city solicitor for the city of Brantford and have worked here for almost 10 years. Um, so today we're talking about the Mohawk Lake District project. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? I would love to. So the Mohawk Lake District project is one of, in my opinion, the most exciting projects taking place in Brantford right now. Um, the Mohawk Lake District was formed by council resolution um, through the 2014-2018 City of Brantford Community Strategic Plan. So that's something that our council puts together to help guide their decision making over their term of council. And it was formed as a way to bring together a number of concurrent initiatives around Mohawk Lake, the canal, and the Greenwich Mohawk former brownfield site. And those initiatives included the approximately $42 million remediation program that would achieve the applicable provincial residential and parkland standards for a, an approximate 50 acre uh, piece of land within the, the heart of what I would say the heart of Eagle Place. Um, on the Greenwich Mohawk Brownfield site. And this was the, the former location of the Massey Harris Company and the Cockshut Plow Company. Uh, it also was part of um, the approach to implement a cultural heritage landscape designation for Mohawk Canal and the former Alfred Watts hydro generating station ruins. Um, and also involved initiating a lease agreement with the Canadian Industrial Heritage Center for, a use, for the use of the Cockshut Timekeepers Building as part of an overall plan and to implement the Mohawk Lake and Canal Rehabilitation Project funded in part through the federal government, as well as to investigate route options for the potential expansion of the Veterans Memorial Parkway, which at the time it was believed could include alignments through or, um, or adjacencies through the Mohawk Lake District study area. Now, some of those initiatives have been put on hold due to the need to create a more um, comprehensive faster transportation plan as part of our recent official plan process. So all of these initiatives, I mean, I know that was a mouthful, but all of these initiatives prompted council to uh, direct the revitalization of this area to be considered together within an overall district plan to coordinate revitalization efforts throughout. And as a result, in 2017, the Mohawk Lake District Plan Work Program was initiated, and this was to assist in developing a comprehensive district plan, and planning staff retained a consulting firm called WSP Group to provide technical expertise and to prepare the necessary reports and drawings and to assist with the community engagement program. So that is a very long and high level view of what is the Mohawk Lake District Plan. Can you tell me how the community was involved? This was a significant pro sorry, a significant component of developing the Mohawk Lake District Plan from establishing the vision to the final preferred plan approved by city council. So several meetings and outreach initiatives were held, including a social media campaign. And these were organized between 2017 and 2020 when the plan was finally completed. And these engagement opportunities included gathering feedback from citizens and property owners and respective staff members of Six Nations of the Grand River and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation through several public information sessions, workshops, participation with local school events and community events, both on the Six Nations Reservation and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation to gain input from the community to establish the main vision of the district. Council also established a Mohawk Lake District Working Group comprised of the mayor and members of council. And the mandate of that working group was to address the requests of several community groups who were interested in relocating to the Mohawk Lake District. That working group implemented an expression of interest process to identify future land uses and space, space requirements, including building square footage and or land areas requested by those who had an interest in relocating to the Mohawk Lake District. And these were not-for-profit community groups. In total, the city received nine submissions from those groups. And of the original nine submissions, 
Only two community groups were prepared to move forward with their request for land within the district at this time. And those two groups were the Lansdowne Children's Center and the Dwa de Desne Aboriginal Health Center. So we are currently working with them, um, as well as the Canadian Industrial Heritage Center who was identified earlier on in the process. Um, is there anything specific that came out of the visioning that you're looking forward to seeing come to life? Well, I think Mandy, um, I, you previously mentioned the timekeepers building and uh, the use of that building, the preservation of that building, but also potentially the use of that building as part of a larger, more comprehensive um, museum that will give a nod to Brantford's industrial heritage. And if you look at some of the plans that the Canadian Industrial Heritage Centre has for this particular area, it includes sort of an outdoor event space where they may have and I, I don't speak for them at all, but they have visioned a little bit here um, with respect to outdoor um, wayfinding and maybe even some some artifacts like maybe a Massey tractor. I can't say that for certain, but um, some some things that are a little bit more tangible that you could maybe take your kids for a walkthrough or your family members and and discuss the history of Brantford. I'm also really excited about the park space and what could be used again uh, from the vision that we received from the community. And you've already noted that this was really a community driven vision where um, through all the stakeholder engagement that we conducted, as well as I should give a head nod to the neighborhood associations and the Eagle Place neighborhood associations and various community groups who were really involved in this process. Um, you, see, you see a community discussing and strategizing and dreaming about what their community could look like over the next five to 10 years and then into the further into the future. And so I think that part was exciting, but going back to the park, the idea of a space that could be used to hold events um, and have concerts potentially um, and, and be more of a community space for Eagle Place and associated neighborhoods and uh, you know, have that really be driven by the community. Um, so you don't necessarily have to go all the way to Lions Park, for instance, if you wanted to hold an event and it would, it's not gonna be quite as large as that, but it could definitely be a really wonderful space to program into the future. And then adjacencies with Lansdowne Children's Center and they're looking at potentially putting a swimming pool in their facility that could be accessible to the public as well. So that's a great asset for, for the community there. Um, and then as well as Dwa de Desne, looking at some outdoor programming space that would then, um, also tie back in with their, their idea of providing, you know, healing to a particular community and how the park could be oriented to complement their uses. So I think that's one of the benefits of, of community-driven comprehensive planning is that everything becomes really interconnected and flows from the neighborhoods that surround this particular district. They, 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 the idea is that they will complement one another and be a space that could be used to its highest potential by the community. Could you tell us where we are with the project now? So right now, um, we've gone through the visioning process with the, with the community, as you've mentioned. Um, and in 2020, the final Mohawk Lake District Plan was approved by Brantford City Council. Um, and staff from various commissions within the organization are working to develop an implementation plan. So now that the vision has been set, we get to roll up our sleeves and, and do the hard work of how do we implement this vision that's really come from the community and various stakeholders. Um, in early 2022, as part of that process, planning staff will be bringing forward an official plan amendment, which will establish the official plan policies um, for the Mohawk Lake District and uh, reflect the over overall land use policy framework to implement the Mohawk Lake District plan. Um, so what that means is they will really set out the various uses that will be permitted on this site. And at the same time, we will be bringing forward a zoning bylaw amendment, which will permit the museum use on the site, which will be leased to the Canadian Industrial Heritage Centre. So all of this is necessary 
um, in order to lay the foundation for, for the implementation and, uh, of the plan and the various developments that we hope to see in the future. And while it may not look like anything is happening on the site, you may still see some hoarding and fencing and you know the grass growing on the other side of the fence. There's a lot of work going on on paper in terms of the design and particularly the infrastructure design that's necessary in order to see a successful redevelopment of the land. And there is a significant amount of work to be done in that area. And of course, I just mentioned the planning processes. Hi, Joy, welcome. Could you introduce yourself for the folks listening at home? Hi, Mandy, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. Um, I'm Joy O'Donnell, and I'm currently the chair of the Mohawk Lake Working Group. Been working in the community since 1995. I grew up in Caledonia, and uh, I've moved to Brantford in 1993. I've been trying to be a community activist ever since, just trying to get involved and do what I can for, for Brantford and Brant County and Six Nations and, and the surrounding area. Could you tell us how the project got started? Yeah, the project actually got started um, by our MP, uh, Phil McCollman. Um, he saw the project as uh, something he could um, sink his teeth into and get started, uh, you know, getting the community to talk about a project that has been on the books for a very long time. Um, many, many people have tried to get Mohawk Lake uh, into a better environmental shape since 1950s when uh, they stopped using the canal really a long time ago, but um, they, they wanted to clean it up and various groups have put together projects to get that started. And unfortunately, um, various things have happened. Um, politics has gotten the way. They had a deal at one point when there was an NDP government in place, and then they lost uh, the government in Ontario and that deal went down. So um, lots of different things have happened along the way, and, and uh, Phil decided that he'd like to try it again. And uh, I happened to be at a Rotary meeting, and at the time I was the chair or maybe vice chair, I can't remember exactly, I think it was chair of the Grand uh, River Conservation Foundation. I heard him speak. So after the meeting, I went up to him and I said, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. But if you need any help with Mohawk Lake, I'd be happy to lend a hand. And it wasn't, I think, maybe an hour later when he called me and asked me to chair it. And, um, you know, when your MP comes and asks you to chair a meeting, you kind of say, yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's how I got into this, uh, this project. And I've learned a lot since getting started. Can you mm -hmm. tell us what's been done so far? Yeah, um, you know, we've been going at this since about 2015. Um, we started off uh, going out to the community and, and actually reaching out for a vision um, of what they want for Mohawk Lake. The visions were really fantastic. You can tell that Mohawk Lake really means a lot to the citizens of Brantford. Um, they've grown up here. A lot of older folks remember Mohawk Lake when it was the thriving location where people went for weekends. Uh, there was a campground there at one point. They recall growing up there as kids and playing and playing in the lake. And it was it was just a lot of really good memories were there. And they were kind of sad that it wasn't there. And, you know, when, when Brantford was thriving at the peak of its prosperity, Mohawk Hawk Lake was at the peak of its prosperity. And it almost seemed like um, we could revive the lake, we could revive the spirit of Brantford and, and really get back to those heydays. And I realized, you know, sort of I learned because I'm not from Brantford, I, I realized how much Mohawk Lake meant to people. And it was almost like if, um, if downtown was our core, Mohawk Lake was our heart. And we wanted to see that heart beat strong again. 
Can you share with us a little bit about the vision for the future for the Mohawk Lake? Yeah, so um, the the vision is really for the lake itself to be a clean and healthy water uh, feature. So Mohawk Lake wasn't a lake to begin with. It's been dredged. It's really, um, it's a marshland. But most people vision it as a lake. So we know that uh, we want to keep it as a recreational lake not necessarily swimming. Uh, to have swimming quality requires a lot of work and a lot of money, and we probably won't get there immediately. Maybe someone you know, later down the road will decide they want to make it swimmable. But at this point, it, it is healthy, though. We, we know that there's a number of species of fish and aquatic life, turtles, that sort of thing that are living in the area. So it is not as polluted as many people think. It is very silty. Um, and that is mostly because of the number of carp that live there. They're stirring up the bottom continuously, which prevents plant life from growing. So we need to, to sort of bring it back to a healthy state. Can you tell us how, if anybody wanted to get involved with the Mohawk Lake Project, how they would do that? We're always looking for new people who are interested in getting involved. And if they want to call me or uh, send me an email, um, I just use my regular work email, joy at grandfinancial.ca. They are welcome to do so. And we would be so happy to take some new folks on with new energy and and, uh, and a love for for the lake. To discuss how development might be impacted by climate change, I spoke with Dr. Brenda Murphy. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us about what you do? Hi. Uh, so, as you said, I'm uh, Dr. Brenda Murphy. I am a professor at Laurier Brantford in the Social and Environmental Justice Program, as well as in the Social Justice and Community Engagement Grad Programs. I'm the program coordinator for both of those programs. Uh, so, I've been uh, at Brantford for 20 years, and have seen a lot of changes over the over that time. Can you tell us what you know about new development in the Brantford area? So, I mean, I'm going to just preface this by saying that I don't live in Brantford. So what I know is mostly coming from uh, an outsider perspective. I can give you a little bit of of information. So one of the interesting pieces about Brantford is uh, the way that the community has really turned around in the last 20 years since I've been there. It's it's an area of growth. There's almost 100,000 people. It's considered to be an urban growth center in terms of Ontario's Places to Grow Act. And so there's a lot of interest in uh, what we call intensification. So not making the uh, footprint of Brantford larger in terms of encroaching on farmland, but in terms of making us, you know, helping us use the land more efficiently. So including things such as can we uh, revamp the brownfields? So if you think of the big Greenwich Mohawk brownfield, which is the former Massey Ferguson land, how, you know, that land is being, uh, you know, repurposed and uh, cleaned up so that we can uh, make use of all of the land that's available in Brantford. And uh, Brantford's a leader on sort of brownfields redevelopment and, and uh, kudos for them to doing, for doing a lot of work in that area. So, you know, Brantford is, is growing in terms of um, homes, it's growing in terms of commercial opportunities, it's growing in terms of industrial opportunities. And then, of course, it's also growing in terms of that knowledge uh, uh, industry, which is, uh, you know, the universities and related kind of activity. So lots and lots happening in in Brantford and uh, lots of movement forward in terms of uh, growth. What should we be considering in terms of climate change when undergoing new development? So climate change has a couple of things we need to be thinking about. 
there's the, the mitigation of the greenhouse gases. So those are the greenhouse gases that cause the, the global warming and cause the, the hot spells, the intense cold spells, the dry spells, the tornadoes, the wind events, all of that stuff. So we really want to be concerned with those greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's the mitigation side of getting that um, those pollutants out of the air, that carbon dioxide and uh, other pollutants out of the air. So how do we how do we deal with that? But then there's also that we know that regardless of whether or not we do anything about climate change, that we do 100% of everything we could do about climate change today, we're going to have to deal with some of the impacts. So how are we going to adapt to, to the climate change that is here and is inevitable, even if we somehow magically to, you know, manage to reduce our emissions. So we need to be looking at both sides of those things, that pollution. But the problem is, is that we're stuck with the, the pollution that's in the air right now for the next few hundred years, at least, if not more. So what are we going to do about the changes, you know? So that big rain event that we had just uh, two weeks ago, um, that's an example of an intense rainfall that, you know, is quite uncommon, but we're going to see more of those things. This intense heat that we've had. Um, they're looking at, you know, temperatures going up to, you know, 39 degrees, not being unusual in, in our area. So how are we going to deal with those sorts of things? So that's going to be the adaptation side. How are we going to manage flooding in those low-lying areas? How are we going to make sure that the communities and the folks that live in those low-lying areas are flood-proofed. Um, how are we going to deal with folks that don't have proper ventilation, don't have air conditioning in the summertime? And we're usually talking about poor, marginalized, perhaps elderly, sometimes disabled, single parent. So how are we going to help all of those various people to cope and adapt to what is likely to be um, some difficult conditions over time? And, and how is the city more generally going to adapt to all of those conditions? So that's going to be a huge kind of a concern that we have. And, and, and but, but I think if we're looking kind of going forward, this is where I think not just Brantford, because Brantford is doing a whole lot of stuff and, and great. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful start. But there's this, this idea of moving towards what we call a just transition. So how can we do climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation in a way that really focuses on those people and groups and organizations that perhaps have left behind. So when you're thinking about, say, for instance, um, mitigation around uh, buses, can we make sure that those new bus routes or however that system of public transportation works takes into consideration the needs of those who are less likely to have cars? How do we design that? with justice in mind for the future. So not just does it make it better so that, you know, commercial vehicles can get around, but how do we make it better for people? How do we make it better for communities? How do we make it better uh, for those, uh, for single parents, for children, for disabled people, all of those things. This is a golden opportunity that we have now as we work to redesign our infrastructure. How do we think about that in the future? And, and the other piece that I really think we have to be thinking about is that those folks that are most affected by all of this stuff, climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, need to be brought to the table to have a say. It can't be somebody from on high coming in and saying, I think this is what will work. Those folks that have, you know, have a lot of local knowledge, they know what works, they know what doesn't work, they know what the, the, the challenges are, they know what the strengths are, those people need to be at the table 
to be able to help design whatever that future is going to look like. The other piece that we really need to be thinking about in terms of of recognition is um, if we're thinking about a just transition and we're thinking about environmental justice, is we really do have to consider that this land was not ours. Um, There needs to be uh, very thoughtful thinking about, about this land, about ownership of this land, about the management of this land, about thinking about who speaks for this land, and about how do we move forward uh, in allyship with our, our First Nations uh, partners. And I think there's a lot of teachings from, from the Indigenous perspective uh, that, we, that is useful, but it's, it's much deeper than that. It really has to do with recognition of that, that, that we're all treaty people and that we're all on this land um, together and that we need to kind of find a way forward on that front. So I think that would be another really important piece as well. We spoke with Heidi DeVries, Joy O'Donnell, and Dr. Brenda Murphy about what's happening in the Mohawk Lake District and Brownfield Redevelopment in Brantford. What were some of the takeaways you guys had? I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had was when Joy was talking about how Brantford created their own oil and grit separators because they didn't exist already. So I thought that was really cool how innovative Brantford was. Yeah, another first yeah, it, it's really important because I did a earth science degree and I also read a book about this and how they deal with this in the West Coast. It's similar. They have catchment basements for rock falls. And so it's really interesting to hear about the same kind of idea being used for a different purpose here. I think one thing that I definitely noticed in all of our segments was the involvement of the community in the different development projects. Yeah, I think it's really important that the community is involved with all of the development that's happening within the city, especially big projects like the Mohawk Lake District. I attended some of the sessions, and I think that that's one of the ones that I've seen the most community members come out to. I just wish that I would see that more often. And I hope that as things progress, people continue to share their opinion because there's still a lot more feedback that needs to be given for that project, especially when they start to design the park like Heidi spoke about or all of those kinds of things. For sure. And even Brenda, Dr. Murphy was talking about how we need to create better processes and systems that allow for people to participate more in these kind of projects and even just development projects that are happening in the city. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that it's important to make it easier for folks to be involved and to share their thoughts um, instead of putting up barriers that make it harder for people to get involved. I remember uh, one of the things that Heidi mentioned that was part of the mandate was to look at making a cultural heritage landscape for the canal and those lands as well, which I remember that was one of the first things uh, when I got on the heritage committee for the city that I remember us doing. And it was really interesting to go down there and walk along the all the land and see just how big of an area is going to be redeveloped here. It is a huge, it's a huge piece of land for sure with endless possibilities, really. And I forgot to talk about the lake because we we were talking about redevelopment and I didn't really think about the redevelopment of the lake. And Joy was 100% right. It was a marsh. 
it was never a lake. And then they dug the canal cut in Brantford from Canesville into the main downtown. And then because of this, this is my earth science and hydrogeology. They dug the canal in through there and it artificially raised the water table. And as a result, it made a lake. And so that's why Mohawk Lake was there. And then it became a, a really big recreational use for the city as well because it was Lovejoy's estate that was out there and everyone used to go there for picnics and what else happened out there? Oh, we have the documents at the museum from the Lovejoy estate transferring it to the city for the creation of Mohawk Park. And then the Brantford Street Railway Company goes out there and it becomes part of the park system throughout the entire Grand River watershed. So it's been like a real community hub and center for a very long time in Brantford's history. I think that's one thing that stood out to me when Mandy, you're speaking to Joy specifically was that during the community discussions, people really had strong memories and strong connections to Mohawk Lake. Yeah, I actually, we as a family, we love to fish at that, at that lake too. I mean, we're not people that take fish home and eat them. So we like to go there and fish because you get all of these little, I think they're largemouth bass, but they're just little tiny ones and they bite really quick. So you're not waiting around. So we can just fish and then throw it back and then fish. And it's a lot more exciting than waiting a long time for, for fish to bite. So that's my style of fishing. <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of memories mentioned around the lake for sure. Yeah. I didn't know people still go there to do that. I, I didn't realize, I, I guess maybe not being from here it's a tough spot to get a spot to stand at because there's not many spots that you can fish from so you go you go driving down and have a look and see if there's any spots and if not you're out of luck because there's only so many spots you can actually stand and fish there because a lot of them are on the south side of the lake right and the road goes right on along the side there and mm-hmm. and the a lot of the road is along the old towpath right because it was part of the canal so you had a towpath for the barges to float i'm just excited to see what it'll be like when they when they get it all cleaned up and it'll just be so beautiful i think yeah it's going to be a real like thriving place and with the amount of community space park space and the idea of people living there as well on some of this land, living and being some commercial space. Mm-hmm. It should make it like an actual integrated neighborhood. In my mind, I think, isn't that the direction we should be moving into? This integrated space and neighborhood where there's a little bit of everything. So you can kind of, not that we don't want people to leave their communities, but kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, it's you don't need to get into your car and drive half an hour, an hour to get somewhere special. It's you're already somewhere special that has everything you need. Walkable neighborhoods. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of walkable neighborhoods. I I don't drive. So I usually walk everywhere. And when it's easy for you to get everything within a walkable distance, it's a much more sustainable style of life. And that's something that Dr. Murphy talked about is how we're building more sustainable things And also these like flood resilient structures, structures that are going to be able to adapt to climate change, which is really important. People look at things often on the timescale of their life and what they've experienced within their life. But when it comes to planning a community, 
you look for a much longer time scale. And when you look at like the ev- evolution of the earth and how a landscape changes, it takes hundreds or thousands of years in order to watch all of that occur. Mm-hmm. And I think that was interesting too, that Dr. Murphy talked about, you know, these are all the things we need to consider when we're building new things or developing new areas. You know, it, it will take time to get community input and make sure everyone's voices are heard. But in the grand scheme of things, like the time spent up front is nowhere near how long people will be using that space. That's a very good point. I thought it was also interesting too how Heidi had mentioned all of the work that's still going on right now, even though we're not really seeing any action over at the Mohawk Lake district site. And I think that that was really important to point that out because a lot of people probably wonder why there's been the talk about it and the consultation about it, but then nothing happens, but it's because it's all happening behind the scenes and in the background until they're ready. Yeah. I just imagine, um, you know, the people doing all the paperwork and all the drawings and everything and they're hearing, well, nothing's happening. And it's like, I've been working so hard. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I was so glad that she mentioned that part. Yeah. There's a lot of moving pieces that I don't think people realize how much is really involved, like how many people are involved and steps people have to take and even securing funding. Yeah. There really is a lot of different moving pieces like Joy's group has to do their thing and it has to work in conjunction with Heidi and the city and what they're doing and then the planning department as well. It's a complex process and uh, in order to do that you need to do a lot of good planning and have a lot of good stuff on paper before you actually start building things. Which actually kind of makes me think of what you talked about in the past segment Nathan where I don't remember which company this was, but they basically threatened to pull out of Bramford <laughs> to get their way. And like, that's not, <laughs> I don't know. To yeah. me, that doesn't seem like getting proper feedback and going through the proper channels. Yeah. I mean, in, in the past, it was a much more uh, looser set of rules and regulations and laws. And often the reason that these things get created are it's because someone has tried to operate outside of them. In reality, these things tend to make things a lot better for our community when we're building them for the future. That's it for our third episode of For the Love of Brantford. Thank you to our guests, Heidi DeVries and Joy O'Donnell for taking the time to speak to me about the Mohawk Lake District and the Mohawk Lake. And thank you to Dr. Brenda Murphy for sharing thoughts on how to involve the community in future development projects. If you are looking for additional information about the Mohawk Lake District or Mohawk Lake Cleanup Group, you can find them on the library website at brantfordlibrary.ca FLB. And don't forget to tune in for our next episode about street names in Brantford. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. Remember to check out the bonus episodes with the full interviews with our guests. We would love to hear from you if you have a question. Just fill out a form on our website. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Atherington and Zila Ozels. 
This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library. <laughs>